Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58, we're finishing today a week-long study on how to study the Bible. And before we introduce a few last points, is there anyone here at all who would be willing to mention something they recall from the first five lectures this week? Any point about Isaiah 58 or about how to study the Bible? You have a minute to read one thing. That's it. So God will be, uh, will guard our back, our rear guard. We follow what we can in front of us, and he takes care of what we don't have enough wherewithal to, to take care of. Yes? Know your computer program, in which case, and what one do I use? That's it, and I recommend it. It's free and it's powerful. Yes, or anything else? I'm looking for hands. In the back. God can speak through us, and he can speak through people whose character is terrible. And also the devil will often have terrible people say the truth. Who has them say it sometimes? Why would the devil have a wicked man tell the truth? So you might turn away from it. Or a mean man tell it to you, or a good man tell you when his temper is flaring. You're going to have to watch to not be tricked by that. Someone remember something else. Yes. That's it. So God as a storyteller is able to tell stories that appeal to all generations. Do you get something out of them when you're five? You do. But what a way you jip yourself if you don't go back to it because you think you know it. There's something there for you when you're 20, something when you're 60. You're Mr. Hickman. Okay, especially in Paul's writings, this is helpful. That how do Hebrews often write? They often write, well, without getting too complex, let's say that if you take their phrases backwards, you can make sentences that make more sense in English. If that doesn't make sense to you, get the notes from this week and read them. It's been a real help to me in Paul's writings, those big, hairy sentences. You're, yes. That's it. So memorization is an investment today in my Bible study tomorrow. The Holy Spirit will use the store of my mind to bring back to my mind ideas that I've already learned, and the Spirit will put them together. Yes. Yeah, you. That's it. If you already have an idea and you begin to search the Bible to find evidence in favor of it, guaranteed if you're wrong, you'll never find out. You will just find ways to use what's there to prove your point. And I told you that sad story of how I learned that myself. Do you remember anything else from this week? Yes. Okay. The favorite thing from Young Disciple Magazine, before every Bible study, it says, never open the scriptures without prayer. prayer. And that doesn't mean a formal, a formal ritualistic prayer where you just say it you're pleading with God to help you understand his Bible. That's the truth. In the back. All of the ways when you, uh, when you 
okay, you want to understand the Bible. The Bible is a powerful book. Can you understand calculus when you're groggy? No. You can't even read your history books when you're groggy. Why would we approach the Bible when we're that way? So the first thing you do when you get up is get, make your prayer of consecration. Give your life to God. But if you're not awake when you first wake up, you know what I mean by that, then do something before you get to your Bible study. Good point. Or anything else. Yes. All right, when you read a sentence, if you will say the sentence as many times as you need to to put an emphasis on each word, sometimes it will highlight an idea that is in the sentence, but you somehow missed it. It's a beautiful technique, slowing down and taking time. Yes? They do, don't we? That people can twist the scriptures. They don't have any excuse for it, do they? And do we want to twist the scriptures? And that's why we're going over these principles. You remember anything else from this week? Yes. This is right. It's not that the spirit of prophecy isn't entirely reliable. It's not that you can't trust what Ellen White writes. But God never intended that you would go to a prophet as a substitute for doing intense digging. And what happens if you do that? Many things God has refused to reveal, for example, to Ellen White. Did you know that the most complex chapters in the Bible, you won't find Ellen White, rarely does she quote them. Rarely is there any reference to them. Why? God did not want to stop you from digging. Dig first. See what God can show you. Yes. Okay, so one of our first and principles combined with the middle principle is how do you relate to other people teaching? Can God use people to teach you? But he intends for your mind to be engaged and that when you listen to him, you don't just think he's all right or he's all wrong, but you evaluate the various points. Is that really what the verse says? Is that really what God teaches? Did he really prove that? You listen critically so that you're not dependent like a baby where you could easily be... Miss Fed. Yes. Okay, this is the idea, right? To wean yourself from human dependence and learn to depend on God Himself. Miss Byru. This is it. So, the reason why many Seventh day Adventists, people in their 40s, don't know much about the Bible even though they've been having devotions for 15 years every day, what does that amount to? You're talking about 5,000 devotional periods, but they don't know much at all. Why is it? It's because they haven't been sharing what they have been learning. Multiple sharing turns into long-term recollection. And that's beautiful. Remember, anything else? Yes. Okay, so when you use commentaries, they can be helpful, but you don't treat them as if you can just believe what they say. You treat them like a, like a friend. And what do I mean by faith-based commentary? I mean, if you find a commentary that talks about this passage probably doesn't belong, and this probably was written 200 years after it claims to be, and those aren't the commentaries that you want. But you're looking for men who invested time in studying. I gave you a list of some that are helpful in the handout. 
Anyone else? Yes. So meditation is a big part of learning. What does meditation do? It changes Bible study into deep Bible study. Because many of the ideas of Scripture are simple to hear and believe, like God is love, but they are anything but simple to really get the depth of them. So meditation is what takes us deep. Yes, go ahead. Don't allow yourself to be distractions. Distractions. Can I rebuke us as an entire body? I'm going to anyway, and whatever happens, happens. I prayed. I'm about to rebuke them. Give me just a moment. (laughs) When God is speaking through a speaker, God is trying to keep the attention of the people and gather it to himself, to his Bible, through the speaker. Cameras and video cameras moving around and flashing and rising have, even those of you who use cameras, if you will just think about your own experience, you'll realize how many times in your life you have been distracted from what's going on by what's going on a little bit closer to you I know I'm risking a lot by saying this, but out it comes. If cameras existed when Exodus was written, one of the verses would have said, no, I better not make up a verse. (laughs) You read Exodus and see what the laws were about the sanctuary, and you'll realize what one of them would have been. Distraction is fighting against or competing with what the Holy Spirit is trying to do, and you do not want to compete with the Holy Spirit. I did it. You're going to have to check it out to see if it's the truth. I know it is. Someone else remember something from this week. That just made you quiet, didn't it? You're with me in your Bibles. Isaiah 58. Let's learn some more things. Turn there. Isaiah chapter 58. Let's look at verse 10 for a minute. Isaiah 58 and verse 10. It says, And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. And the Lord shall guide you continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones. What I want you to see is a connection between verse 10 and 11. Who has the food in verse 10? In verse 10, you have it and you give it to someone who is hungry. In verse 11, who has the food? God has it and he gives it to you when you are hungry. Do you see a similarity in principle to um, what did Jesus say? He said, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Our Father, forgive us as we forgive our debtors. Who is fed here? It's those who are willing to feed. I want to say this principle, I want to say it many different ways. It's like the primary principle of all of nature, this idea. It's the, it's the way everything works. 
if you make yourself a channel for blessing, you receive a blessing. I've listened to a lot of religious meetings in the last two weeks, and I forget whether I heard this here or somewhere else. So if it was here, it bears repeating regardless. In the Bible, there are just a few bodies of water mentioned. One of them is the Jordan River. The Jordan River is a beautiful river. I've never seen it except in pictures. I just trust people that have, and I've seen pictures. Where the Jordan River is, there is foliage and trees, and it's just pretty. The Jordan River eventually ends in, what does it end in? But the Dead Sea, which receives all of that water that gives so much life wherever it goes, listen, the water gives life wherever it goes. But when it gets to the Dead Sea, does that water give life at the Dead Sea? Pray tell what happens at the Dead Sea. What changes that the water that gives life stops giving life? Why is the Dead Sea right there? I mean, let me try the question again. We have the Salt Lake somewhere else. But the, I'll just say simply, Israel was a small nation. And God put right near them the Dead Sea. Because the Dead Sea became a symbol of them. What did they receive for th more than a thousand years? They received the life that could have been life. It gave life wherever it went. It gave life to the king of Babylon. It gave life to the men of Nineveh. It gave life wherever it went. Did it give life to them? For many of them it did not because they were receiving but they were not giving. And that was if any of you are into reading up on what you heard in Sabbath school, I recommend reading the second chapter in the second volume of the Testimonies. It's all about this point. In fact, it quotes Isaiah 58 at length. Can I summarize what it says in that chapter and tell you so you can check it out? It says that God's people do not understand what God requires of them. It's not what they think. And it's not what they want to believe. And she summarizes that what God is looking for is service. Selfless service of others. I'll give you another quote that illustrates what's in that quote. This is from Christian Service, page 115. It says something like this. Visit your neighbors in a kind, friendly way. Those who will not do this, who manifest the indifference that some have shown, will soon lose their first love and grow critical, condemning, and censorious of their fellow brethren. What are those ideas? They're the idea of Isaiah 58. It's the idea that those who are giving are the ones that are receiving. But can you see the other idea in Isaiah 58? If you're not giving your bread to the hungry, what happens when you're hungry? You go hungry. If you're not giving clothing to those that need it, what happens when you need, for example, spiritual clothing? You don't receive it. The, the principle is a simple one to understand. Isn't it a simple one to understand? I want you all to yell, yes, sir. Let me try it again. Is it yes. a simple idea to understand? Yes, sir. Now, did you say that because I said I wanted you to say that? Yes, okay. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs 
11. Proverbs 11. And we're looking at verse 25. This is a verse that if you've grown up in Adventism, you might read it wrong. Proverbs eleven twenty-five. The liberal soul shall be made fat. It just so happens that in our context, both of these positive words have taken on a negative connotation. What does liberal really mean at its ground? That's right, it means giving. Liberal means giving. This verse is the same principle as in Isaiah 58. The person who is giving is the one who is receiving. It's a positive idea. And he that watereth shall be watered also himself. Can you see it's, using, it's making us into a picture of a plant? that as we are sharing water, that we become ourselves well-watered. Now, those of you memorizing Isaiah 58, you remember, Isaiah 58 said something about us and water. What, do, what happens to our life related to water? Like a watered garden and like a what? Do you see that idea in this verse? That like a watered garden, we ourselves are watered, but like a spring of waters. What's happening? We are giving water. Oh, there's so many ideas in this, in this thought. Turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're looking at verse 38. Mm, it would be more helpful if we went back to verse 37. John chapter 7, and looking at verse 37. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Was Jesus the way we read in Isaiah 58? Was he giving to those that were thirsty? He offered to, didn't he? Look at verse 38. He that believes on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of... Does it almost sound like he's making reference to Isaiah 58? As the scriptures hath said, he that believes on me, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Look at the next verse. But this spake he of, what does it say? Of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive... For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. There came a time a little later than this that Jesus was glorified in heaven, and the Spirit was poured out in mighty power. There is in the verse a principle illustrated in Isaiah 58. Do we pray for more of the Holy Spirit? Do we ask for more of the Holy Spirit in our life? Isaiah 58 says to us almost like this, you have been given some of the Spirit. Let it do what it wants to do in you. You've been given some of the Spirit. It tried to move you to selfless service, to, 
visiting and writing and sharing and giving and you wouldn't do it, therefore you are not ready to receive more of the Spirit. But under what condition do you become like a spring? Why, it's if you give and you share and you... Isn't that what Isaiah 58 is teaching? Selfless service is how you cultivate the Spirit you already have and in return, God gives you so much of the Spirit that your belly becomes like a spring of living waters. What time is it, Miss Wiley? I'm so happy to hear that. All right. Turn up in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're looking at verse 1. Yesterday, we were on a uh, ferry going across the, I always want to call it the river. My parents were engaged next to the Columbia River where it was called the Columbia River. But here it's Lake Roosevelt. And so we were crossing at Lake Roosevelt on the ferry, and one of my call porters asked if he could throw some bread into the water for the fish. I think it was for the fish. It might have been for the birds, but I think it was for the fish. Is that a good idea spiritually? Throw your bread in the waters? Ecclesiastes 11.1 1 says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you shall find it after many days. Verse 2, Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil shall come upon the earth. Look down to verse 6. In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thine hand, for thou knowest not whether they shall prosper, either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. This was one of the first things I learned in canvassing. I have learned it so many times since. We are, as a people, horribly incapable of evaluating how people are going to respond to the spiritual truth we share. This has become so true that I eventually came to conclude that if I meet a man who has earrings and necklaces and tattoos and listening to the worst of music, I expect him to buy a book. I don't only expect him to buy a book, I expect him to talk intelligently about things in the Bible and to have a sincere interest in who I've already been reading and to be a deep thinker. That's not what I thought the first time I met someone like that. My wife and I, when we learned this principle, hmm, I should make that more accurate, when we began to practice this principle, <laughs> about visiting our neighbors. We went to visit our closest neighbor. Let me tell you what I knew about the closest neighbor before we visited and what I knew about the closest neighbor after we visited. It's quite remarkable, the difference. Before I visited, I knew that they were prejudiced against Seventh-day Adventists and against the school. I had heard the rumors, and the dogs were, they had a lot of mean dogs around there. 
and I'd seen the mean looks on some of their faces when I would drive by. What, when did I know this about them? This is before I visited them. When we actually got there to visit them, this is what I found. They invited us in their house. They were so glad to see us. The man, when he was about 19 or 20, married his wife. She was about the same age. He began to build a house with a little bit of know-how he knew how. It's a good thing he built it when he was in his young 20s because in his mid-20s he developed crippling arthritis. He was never able to get a job again. And his fingers now never much leave a shape like this. And now I suppose he's in his 70s. You know, his house hasn't been maintained in the last 50 years. It doesn't smell very good. But they were very glad to see us. He and his wife lived there in one room of it. They pled with us. I don't mean like begging, but like the very polite type pleading to please come back and see them again. I was thinking, should I ask them if they would like to study the Bible together? I asked them. You know what they said about that? They had been studying the Bible with a Seventh-day Adventist lady, and they really enjoyed it. Her name was Mrs. Polk. She was in her late 70s. And then they didn't understand why, at some point, she stopped coming. They weren't able to go see her because they are shut in. Would you like to know why Mrs. Polk stopped going to see them? Why? She came down with serious Alzheimer's disease and didn't even know sometimes who she was. But as long as she had her mind, was she serving? She was serving. And so they had been having Bible studies, and, and the studies had just stopped. So let me just tell you what I said before the story, because stories aren't Bible verses, but sometimes they illustrate them. Suppose that you've been asking for guidance or you've been asking for light in your darkness, or you have been asking that you would be more effective in your evangelism, that you would be, or what are some of the beautiful promises in Isaiah 58? If you've been asking for those kind of gifts, is there a set of conditions that lead to those things? Well, pray tell, what is it? Isn't it selfless service? You're asking for the spirit, but what is the condition? It's using the spirit that's already been put in you, moving you to serve and give to the needs of others. Yeah, that's the truth. Turn with me back to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, let's look at verse 9. It says, Then you shall call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. The first thought I want to share with you from this verse is just that that's not the way we often 
hope God will answer our prayer. That is, our idea of prayer is sometimes kind of like this. We ask, and God answers by the gift appearing. But in this prayer, we ask by talking to God, and he answers by talking to us. Which is really an answer? A gift appearing or God speaking to us? And in this verse, what kind of answer does God want to give? Does he want to speak to us? My devotions took on an entire different flavor in my life when they became a back and forth. I don't want to say a back and forth between God and I, unless I'm careful to say it reverently, because it's not a back and forth like buddy to buddy or like kid to kid. It's more like needy man to powerful provider. But still, back and forth, me asking God speaking. Look at the last half of verse 9. If you take away from the midst of thee the yoke. So I will preach one minute on the yoke. Men from the time that they are young, like to have power over their fellow men. And when they get old, they don't lose this. So that men in responsible positions often feel they have a right to forbid those that are under them. In the Bible, there are a couple examples, and they're both godly people used by God and chosen by him. I'm thinking first of Joshua. You remember Joshua? Joshua was there with Moses, and Moses was taking advice from his father-in-law, and he called the elders of Israel to come, and all but two of them came. And then the Spirit was poured out on those that came, and they began to prophesy in the camp. But Eldad and Medad, for reasons we do not know, and I'm glad we don't know their reasons, Eldad and Medad, for reasons we don't know, did not come when called. Did God appreciate their reasons? He must have had respect for them because what happened to Eldad and Medad? They began to prophesy right there in the camp. Joshua heard, and Joshua began to think like this. If the people look up to the two disobedient ones, our order and discipline here is going to fall to pieces. Moses gave a command. They did not obey. And so he said to Moses, Moses, forbid them. Does anyone remember what Moses had to say about that? He said, Joshua, are you envious for my sake? I wish everyone in God's church was a prophet. Can you see that Moses, though he understood authority and respected position that he also was very comfortable with God leading individuals. And it made sense to him that God might not lead an individual to do just what he said. Did that make sense to Moses? And was Moses okay with someone not being led to do just what Moses said to do? He was. And Joshua didn't understand that. And does that make Joshua a wicked man? Joshua was a very godly man. In fact, Jesus chose a name that really was the same one as Joshua. Jesus chose a name Joshua for his own. But Joshua had something to learn about the yoke. 
not expecting that everyone under you is going to be led to do just what you say to do. Go to the New Testament and you have their James and John. They're going for a stroll one day and they see a man casting out devils in the name of Jesus. And they realize things are getting out of control. We don't know this man. He it doesn't meet in our councils. He might misrepresent what it means to be a disciple. And he's not part of the system. And they said, excuse me, sir, but don't do this anymore. When Jesus heard about it, what did Jesus say? He said, don't forbid them. And I want to preach about that more, but I'm going to stop and just say that one of the conditions of receiving what God wants to give you is that you put away the yoke, arbitrary authority. I don't mean that parents don't tell their children what to do. That's not even what I mean. But I mean that in God's church that you understand that there are places for God to guide people in ways that might not make sense to you. And that an authoritative position in God's church doesn't mean you have a right to dictate what people do and don't do. So, true or false, did I just preach that if someone dictates, it proves they're a wicked man? I did not preach that. The next part of verse 9 says, the putting forth of the finger. This is one of the things to put away, right? I think we learn very early in life what that means. What's, what's that mean? Pointing. Y- yeah, and it's our way, of, our way of saying there's something wrong with you, right? We, just, we, we don't tend to point for positive things, at least when we're young. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah. You're in Isaiah, to Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah 29. And we're looking at verse 20. It says, for the terrible one is brought to nothing. That's going to happen when Lucifer is brought down to the sides of the pit and he turns to ashes. He's the terrible one. For the terrible one is brought to nothing and the scorner is consumed. In the big picture, Satan is the scorner. but He's not the only one. And all they, what does it say next? That what? All they that watch for iniquity are cut off. Children, can I speak? You don't want to be called children. You're young disciples. Young disciples, I want to talk to you about something deep for a moment. It's possible for you to make it hard for your parents to get to heaven. It's possible. When you are mischievous or disobedient on a regular basis so that that your parent feels like that he has to watch you or you're going to get away with something. You know him watching you is not good for him? It's very bad for him spiritually. And you know it's not good for you either? It's bad for you spiritually? 
do you see the spiritual importance of not needing to be watched? Taking control of your own self so no one needs to be watching you? Because the verse says, all that watch for iniquity are, what does it say? Are cut off. It says that make a man an offender for a word and lay a snare for him that reproves in the gate. That turn aside the just for a thing that is nothing. So what are the blessings that come in Isaiah 58 if you put away the finger? You stop pointing it. That's the light. That's the guidance. That's the spirit filling. These are the things. What does it mean? It, it means to stop watching to see who is doing wrong so you can point them out. Watching for iniquity is exactly what Lucifer is doing. He's watching to see. And then he's trying to take advantage of what he notices. We don't want to do that. Turn with me. Did we finish it? Yes, we did. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah 20, and looking at verse 9. Jeremiah was a prophet, which means he didn't have much option about whether or not he would rebuke people. And they didn't like what he had to say. In fact, God told him before he even got started, they wouldn't like it. And eventually, Jeremiah concluded he wasn't going to do it anymore. I've seen people do that with canvassing. They just conclude at a certain point they're not going to do it anymore. They have had it. They are done. It's over. Does that happen, Mr. Griswold, in Frontier Missions? People conclude they've had it. They're done. It's over. I sort of guessed it probably does. That, that happens to people. You know that happened to Jeremiah. You can read about it right there in verse 9. He says, Then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But you might notice this is in the middle of the book, which means he must have kept going, right? It says, But his word was in mine heart as a burning fire, shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. You see, it's tiring to keep going in God's work, but it's also tiring to stop. And you have to choose which weariness you're going to give in to. If you give in to the weariness that tries to tell you that the weariness that comes from doing the work, you lose your reward. But the weariness you ought to give in to is the weariness of resisting the Spirit telling you to do it. When the Spirit is saying go, it wears on you to resist that, and it's not safe to resist it. Verse 10, listen. For I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side. Report, say they, and we will report it. All my familiars watched for my halting, saying, Peradventure he will be enticed, and we shall prevail against him, and we shall take our revenge on him. Young people, this does happen among young people. It happens among young people that someone that's rebuked them, now they're watching for evil. If it's bad for a dad to watch for evil, do you think it might be bad for a young person to watch for evil? 
And it's as bad for young people as it is for older people. And sometimes young people will watch the one who has corrected them. And what are they watching for? It says his halting. That's when he sort of stumbles. They're watching. And if you watch a man long enough, are you going to see him stumble? And when you see him stumble, what were these people doing? Did you see it? He stumbled. Tell someone. He stumbled. He stumbled. He stu and, and there it goes. And I will tell you, it is the spirit of Satan. It really is. What is God trying to do? He's trying to cover our stumbles. And what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to spread abroad the news about our stumbles. And uh, I think you can draw a conclusion. All of this is just a little sermon on that phrase that said, put away the pointing of the finger. Miss Wiley, what time is it now? Okay. Turn us in your Bibles to Psalm 37, and we're looking at verse 3. Psalm 37, and looking at verse 3. I take you to this verse just because it looks to me like a summary of Isaiah 58. I love verses that are summaries. They help put the idea in my head in a shorter version. Trust in the Lord and do, what does it say? Good. So shalt thou dwell in the land, and verily thou shalt be fed. It's simple. I know from reading the book of Amos, maybe we should turn there for our last passage. We should. Turn to me in your Bibles to Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8. Hosea, Joel, Amos. I didn't tell you a verse number yet because I don't know which verse. Just a moment. Verse 11. Amos 8 and looking at verse 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing what? Now, there might be something in this verse that you've heard many times, but you never thought about. Where does this famine come from? Is this famine just the result of what's going on here on earth? A natural result? Do you know it's a judgment from heaven when God stops sending his word to people? Do I know a famine is coming on this earth? And it's coming in justice. I mean, let me illustrate it so you can see. When bad people kill God's people, they shed their blood. God gives them, because of this, blood to drink. You remember that in Revelation 16? And when people worship the sun in figure by keeping Sunday, they're not trying to worship the sun, but they're honoring pagan sources over God's commandments. 
when they do that, what happens in the plagues? They're smitten with the sun. These are just pictures of how God works. If people have the Bible, let's say the Christians of the world have a Bible, and they aren't sharing it with those that have need, is it just if God strikes them with a famine of not hearing the word of God? Is it just? A famine is coming. Isaiah 58 is the chapter that shows how you can be sure to have the food and drink you need when the famine gets here. And what is the condition of having food and drink when the judgment famine comes? It's selfless service now. A summary of what we said so far, and it's easy to summarize. Don't be a Dead Sea, be a Jordan River. Receive to give, that's how you live. Receive to give, it's how you live. The Dead Sea is dead because it receives and that's all. If I want to understand the Bible, let me share. If I want to have more of the Spirit, let me, you understand the principle. There are some other hindrances that stop us from receiving. Some of them have to do with watching. Watching for iniquity, it's bad for us. It's bad for the ones we watch. It's, and who do you tend to watch for iniquity according to Jeremiah? The person that reproves you, you tend to watch him. What is God doing with iniquity in general? You know, he's trying to cover. I don't mean he's trying to cover it like it's not important, but I mean at the same time God is preaching to people about their sins and their iniquities. At the same time, he's not trying to shame them. If we meet the simple conditions of Isaiah 58, we receive the tremendous blessings. And one of those blessings is guidance continually, hearing a voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk ye in it, when we turn to the right, when we turn to the left. If you'll study that passage of Isaiah, you'll see from the verse behind it that the promise is that God will provide us true teachers. That's how we hear a voice behind us. We teach others, and what does God do? He teaches us. We share his spirit, what does he do? He gives us his spirit. We share his truth, what does he do? He gives us his truth. It's a beautiful, simple idea, the one that runs all of nature. Let's stand for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I'm sorry for how we have listened to the rumors, how we've listened to those discouraging words that Satan has put in circulation that would keep us from visiting our neighbors, from sharing. I'm sorry that we have lost the blessings of yesteryear because we have not been sharing them with others. I ask only that you would take whatever has been said here that is true and give it power by your Spirit. And I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen.